why are Adams Catholic? A-T-O-M-S, atoms. Why are atoms Catholic? Because he had mass. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> a photon walks into a hotel. The desk clerk says, welcome to our hotel. Can we help you with your luggage? The photon says, no thanks, I'm traveling light. <laughs> Oh my goodness. <laughs> Diane's like, what? Big <laughs> photons and molecules of light. Oh, he's traveling about light. Three or, oh. four, three or four o'clock this afternoon. He is <laughs> traveling light. Traveling light. Light. Okay. Light. <laughs> All right, so we're going to start in. Uh, Hebrews chapter 5, verse 1, verses 1 through 3, first in the Passion Translation. And uh, it says, For every high priest was chosen. <laughs> wow, gee. <laughs> Here, let me take that for you. <laughs> okay, back to the scriptures. For every high priest was chosen from among the people and appointed to represent them before God by presenting their gifts to God and offering sacrifices on their behalf. Since I, a priest, is also one who is clothed in weakness, he humbles himself by showing compassion to those who are ignorant of God's ways and stray from them. And for this reason, he has to not only present the sin offering offerings of others, but also to bring a sin, sin offering for himself. And no one... Oh, we'll stop there. Okay. So... Paul, like, you know, when they wrote the letters back then, they didn't have verse numbers, they didn't have chapter numbers, they didn't have titles of the chapters. They were continuing their thought from the previous thought. So it's important to connect that because I like the verse, you know, verse numbers and I like the section numbers, but I think sometimes they put the section numbers in the wrong places. Uh, one example is... Uh, Romans chapter 7 into uh, chapter 8. I feel like they should have put that verse 1 right there with chapter 7. And because it divides up the thought of Paul describing his pre-Christ life versus his now Christ life. And so that's a little frustrating. So here we ended chapter 4, just to refresh, because we were, you know, out of I was out of town last week is where he was talking in verse 14, so then we must cling in faith to all we know to be true. For we have a magnificent king priest, Jesus Christ, son of God, who rose into the heavenly realm for us and now sympathizes with us in our frailty. So if you look at this one, it's talking about how the earthly high priest was also supposed to sympathize with those that he served and that was, as he carried in the sacrifice on behalf of the people, it also had to include him. Yet Jesus is different and that he was without sin. But it's comparing the, the sympathy, the compassion the high priest was supposed to have. Then it says he understands humanity. Jesus understands humanity. For as a man... Our magnificent high priest was tempted in every way just as we are and conquered sin. So now we come freely and boldly to where love is enthroned 
to receive mercy's kiss and discover the grace we urgently need to strengthen us in our time of weakness. So this is a comparison where the earthly high priest was a, a person of sin and had to have a sacrifice on his behalf as well. With Jesus, the, the point is that he became a man, he conquered sin so that we could then enter the throne room boldly, right? That word boldly means to speak your mind and get this, never fear being too blunt. Isn't that interesting? Never fear being too blunt with God. Now that obviously doesn't mean disrespectful and things like that. But you can just tell him what you're thinking. And you don't have to worry about him killing you or, you know, not listening to you or anything like that. You can go boldly, never fear being too blunt. And then the discover, so that you may discover the grace. Uh, I did tell you guys how it's uh, the word Eureka. So it's an intensely investigate study where all of a sudden, Eureka, you got the grace that you urgently need. And the word need is very interesting. It's a military operation to help a fallen comrade. That's what the word need means. Isn't that interesting? And then mercy's kiss to receive. You know, when I think of the word receive, I think of, you know, someone handing me something and I receive it. But have you ever had someone snatch a paper out of your hand? You know, something like that. That's what it means. It's not that you're receiving passively. In the Greek is you are forcibly seizing and laying hold of something and taking it as your own. So I wish it was more like grasp or, you know, seizing the grace. So to me, when you look in the original language, we see that this is not a passive, you know, you're a pitiful human being going before God, hoping to obtain some mercy to help you because you're struggling with the fact that the pastor didn't shake your hand when you came into church that morning. Instead, it's a military operation that you're in the middle of a battle, right? You're in the middle of a battle, and you need some help. So you're going to march right into the war room, right into the throne room, and say, I need this, this, and this in order to fulfill the mission you have given me to fulfill. And I now grasp it. I seize it. Eureka, I'm going to take it with me and win the fight. Totally different picture. Totally different picture. One thing that you have to remember is, number one, we're not widows. We're brides. And number two, we are brides with army boots on, always. We don't have no high heels walking around trying not to fall. We have army boots on, right? So that's the picture. So then Paul gives us that picture, which is totally different than most of what's uh, taught. And the only reason that we can come in that way is because Jesus Christ, our King, conquered sin. Therefore, he has made us king priests. So then Paul is continuing his thoughts saying that the earthly high priest, I hope you notice, was chosen from among the people and appointed to represent them before God right? So all other high priests were inferior to Jesus Christ because number one, they were human, but he was too. So what made them a little bit different? Well, they were chosen from among the people. He was appointed as God to become man 
and to always remain God, right? And always now to remain man. So they had to offer sacrifices on behalf of those they were appointed to, but also themselves, since all high priests before Christ suffered from the same weakness. Now, weakness is, quote, a state of incapacity to do or experience something. Now, it's often used to refer to when you're weak physically, uh, maybe due to an illness or something of that nature, but it also was speaking of an internal reality due to the fall of mankind. In other words, the weakness that is being referred here is the incapacity to be free from sin. That's what it's talking about. It's not talking about, you know, health and physical and all that, although that's included in the covenant and what he purchased for us. But no person before Christ could be incapable of sin's dominion. They cannot, un they cannot escape from that reality. Okay, so then that should bring up a point that in the majority of churches in the Western Hemisphere, I can't speak for the Eastern Hemisphere, but I dang sure can speak for America, most of the churches I have been a part of actually preach more sin than the fact that you are free from it. Right. In fact, if you were, and y'all have all heard me, but I think this is worthy of repeating because it's been a while, if you you will hear Christians say, I'm a sinner saved by grace. If you tell them they're not a sinner, they're like, what? It's like, have you not heard the good news? But most of what's taught in churches on the sin issue especially is bad news. So you get uh, instruction that you're fighting two <coughs> natures on the inside of you, but the Bible tells us that old nature that was prone to sin has been crucified. It is dead. Does it mean you can't be tempted? Absolutely not. But those that have grasped the reality that they are already righteous, they are not dominated by sin nor subjected to sin. Sin has no power over them. They consider or do the mathematical calculation that the price paid freed them from the effectiveness of sin. Those that live that way then try to communicate that to someone else, you're met with blank stares. Don't you think it's like um, when somebody loses a limb? You know, they said, You still feel like you have itch. a limb. Mm -hmm. uh, it will hurt, even though you don't have a limb anymore, mm -hmm. that you still have all the symptoms. It's a from phantom. And phantom. And mm -hmm. I think once that we have that old man crucified, we still have phantom sim symptoms or you know, mm -hmm. that we still think that is there, and it's not. Well, and the reason we think it's there is because it's very simple. There's a very simple reason. The soul must be renewed by the Word. So the sinful nature is dead. The soul has to be renewed. So people get confused. They're like, well, if sin had no power over me, then why did I do that? It's your thinking. That's what has to be yeah. transformed. And so... Here, and then let's take it a step further, because now when you go to the, the level that the Lord says we're supposed to be in, now you can almost be labeled a heretic if you're not careful. Because in First John, let me see if I can find it. I think it's chapter 1 into uh, chapter 2. You said First John? Yeah. 
Okay, so let's, and I don't have my, um, my other Bible, but let's actually start with uh, verse 5 in 1 John 1. It says, this is the life-giving message we heard him share, and it's still ringing in our ears. We now repeat his words to you. God is pure light. You will never find even a trace of darkness in him. If we claim that we share life with him, but keep walking in the realm of darkness, we're fooling ourselves and not living the truth. But if we keep living in the pure light that surrounds him, we share unbroken fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, continually cleanses us from all sin. Now, this is important. It's not saying that you're going to sin. It's a matter of location. Are you walking in the dark, or are you walking in the light? If you're walking in the light, what does light naturally do? It exposes. So, as you walk in the light, the Holy Spirit, who is the Spirit of Truth, says, Hey, I don't like what you did or what you said or your thought process. It's not congruent with my word. Okay? And so you're like, you're right. That is not congruent. I apologize for that, and I thank you for revealing it to me. And you continue on. And guess what happens? When you come into agreement with light... That area is healed by light because light also heals. Like um, uh, eagles, if they're sick, like if they get, because they like uh, meat that's fresh, right? But if they get a hold of any meat that's bad and they get sick, they find the highest place they can get to away from predators that has water. They then painstakingly pull all of their feathers out. Okay? Then they lay down on the rock, which is where spread eagle, eagle comes from. They lay down on the rock, and they just let the sun pull out all the impurities. Then they get in the water and wash, and then they lay out again. They're not getting a suntan. They're just allowing light to pull out the impurities. And then they have to remain up there until they have grown all new feathers. Isn't that interesting? So sometimes, you're, as you're walking, it may require a pause to go deeper into maybe something that's more embedded in your thinking, which is why it's so important to do that. You know, it's one thing, maybe you said a bad word or maybe you were rude to somebody, you know, and you're like, Lord, you're absolutely correct. I shouldn't have done that. Uh, I agree with you. Would you like me to call that person? Is there anything I need to do? versus a repetitive, ingrained behavior or thought process, right? In heaven, thoughts are louder than words. See, on earth, you can fool a bunch of people with words. In heaven, you can't. So your thoughts, he'll often target and want you to deal with. So sometimes, you can just continue walking and the light does its job. Other times, you need to find you some water or word, you need to get in the light, and you need to spend a little bit of time for Holy Spirit to begin to reveal those things, and don't hide under the cover of your excuses. Pull all those things out, no matter how painful. So the main point, though, is as you do this, He cleanses you from all sin. 
This is having faith in the blood of Jesus for forgiveness of sin versus you feeling that you have to earn His approval once again. Okay? So it's a continuous process. It's not that you have to stop and say, please forgive me. It's you agree, you move on, He cleanses. Verse 8. If we boast that we have no sin, we're only fooling ourselves and our strangers to the truth. But if we freely admit our sins when His light uncovers them, He will be faithful to forgive us every time. God is just to forgive us our sins because of Christ, and He will continue to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we claim that we're not guilty of sin when God uncovers it with His light, we make Him a liar and His word is not in us. So in other words, let him deal with the stuff that he needs to deal with. But this is also referring to those who uh, need to be born again. Where you have people that say, well, I'm a good person. No, that has nothing to do with it. It has nothing to do if you're a good person or not. It has to do, are you born again? Are you now a species of heaven? Are you now superhuman? Because that's what we are. We're superhuman, extra human. So then he says, verse 2, or chapter 2, verse 1, this is where people start to freak out. You are my dear children, and I write these things to you so that you won't sin. But if, not when, like most people teach, if anyone does sin, we continually have a forgiving Redeemer who is face to face with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Verse 2, he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins and not our, only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. He's saying, I'm writing the, the, you these words so that you won't sin, but if you do. Now, let's think about that for a second. What he's saying, the implication, is it is possible to not sin. Oh, my word. I remember one time I told someone that, and I thought I was going to be like crucified right there. Put on the stake. Start the fire. What do you mean? Are you saying that you're without sin? Well, no, but I'm saying that's my goal, right? Why would that be any different than being healed? Why would that be any different than being prosperous? If the cross is the answer to poverty, if the cross is the answer to sickness, then why is the cross not the answer to sin? Because positionally, I'm without it. So what is the problem? <laughs> you know what I mean? And I think what's happened is just like people create doctrine that God doesn't heal all the time because someone didn't get healed, just like people create doctrine that you're supposed to be poor because that's godly, and just like people create doctrine that you will always sin and always fail, they're all based on experiences. One time I was talking to a pastor and I said, it's in the Word, it's the truth, that's what it says. Well, I knew a guy, but and I'm like, it doesn't matter. I don't care what your guy did. I don't care what you saw. The Word says this. And God is looking for a people that will believe this above any experience that contradicts or is inferior of the reality here. Because the only way you're going to experience the full reality of the covenant benefits that He died to give us is by believing this over what you see and what you hear that contradicts it. Right? So that's, that's the tension that we're called to live in. And so Jesus conquered sin, therefore we are not subject to it, and we have the upper hand. Right? So we're soldiers. Okay, so in uh, verse 4, 
it says, And no one takes this honor of being appointed upon himself by being self-appointed. But God is the one who calls each one, just as Aaron was called. So I've got some good news for you, uh, especially if you're in a church where you have to get uh, uh, three elder meetings and uh, a contract drawn up and uh, spies sent to your Bible studies in order to conduct one, that God calls you. The only job of the ecclesia is to confirm and to equip what you're called to do. So you have Peter, and they're like, hey, we don't have time to distribute all these funds to everybody. We're not called to serve tables. And it wasn't a demeaning term. It's just like, we, we need to be devoted to the word prayer. So they, what did he say? Find people among yourselves that are of a good reputation, full of wisdom, and let's appoint them. So the people recognize a gifting in seven individuals and said these men would be great to do that job. And so they're like, okay, and they just appointed them. Whatever you're called to, whatever God appoints you to, you're already doing it by the time the commission comes, which I'll get into that uh, later in this instruction. So this idea that you have to have a church validate your call is based in a pharisaical mindset. That is one of the things I, you know, we've been praying for exposure and against Jezebel spirit. But I, got, I just felt like it, we should be praying against the pharisaical spirit as well. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. You have where the Pharisees came to Jesus and said, who gave you the authority to do these things? Right? He wasn't ordained by them. He wasn't appointed by them. He was appointed by God himself. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And then he went through his uh, period of being tempted and then he came out in power, right? So it's very important to not look to man to appoint you, but instead to look to those who know you to confirm what you're already doing. Now, if you're doing stuff that's silly and you're getting, you know, messes created and you're being rebellious and things like that absolutely that's where the fivefold comes in shuts it down um, if necessary but it's nowhere in scripture that you have to be appointed by a man to serve in the kingdom of god nowhere now people may say well what about acts 13 where the they laid hands the elders laid hands on paul and barnabas what were they doing the laying on of hands, if you look at the context, is they were praying for them because they were already operating in that function. Because it says previous to that, there were certain prophets and teachers of whom Saul and Barnabas, Holy Spirit said, right? Separate unto me. Holy Spirit said, separate unto me Barnabas and Saul that I may send them out. So then the elders are like, yes, sir. So they come around them after fasting and prayer, lay their hands on them to impart some spiritual gift they might need, and then they send them out. So it just is the, the kind of like with the prophetic training, a lot of reasoning was exposed. If you look at a lot of the crap that churches do, a lot of it is man. And if you get down to the Let's just get down to the meat and potatoes, the heart of the issue. It's a fear of losing control. 
it may be painted as uh, wanting to protect the sheep. It can be painted as, well, that problem used to do this, so we better, you know, or that person used to do this, that might be a problem, so we better, you know, whatever it is. I don't know who appointed pastors or fivefold ministers, for that matter, to be the Holy Spirit police and to serve as judge, jury, and executioner. The purpose of the fivefold is to equip and to correct any mistakes that need to be fixed. That's it. Before we go on, I just thought it was interesting because the passion just has a footnote and it says, keeping God's commandments is the proof and evidence of coming to know God, mm-hmm. not a means of knowing God. Oh, that's good. Can you read that again? Yes. Keeping God's commandments is the proof and evidence of coming to know God, not the means of knowing God. And I think that a lot of people think that they are keeping that so that they can get close to God. Mm-hmm. That they can start to know keep God. the rules and regulations, keep the rules and the regulations. Mm-hmm. But it's saying, you know, that's our evidence because we want to do what's pleasing to God. Yeah. But it doesn't help us to know Him. Oh no! If that was the case, the Pharisees wouldn't have uh, right. uh, helped execute His crucifixion. And then on top of that, Jesus said, "If you love me, you do what I say. Not you do what I say and you love me." The love for Him is the evidence is the obedience, mm-hmm. right? So, on the other side of not needing congressional action for you to minister in the church, the other side of that is there are some self-appointed people that have not been appointed by God. Titles are important, influence and power, uh, having a voice is important. So there are those, and we're going to get into those in a, a little bit. So I, I don't want to you know, say anyone that's out there, oops, Anyone that's out there is supposed to be out there. I've met a lot of pastors that should not be pastors, let me tell you. Uh, I've met a lot of uh, apostles that say they were apostles, that they're no more apostle than my cat. So there's definitely people that are out there doing stuff that they are not. I don't know. Joseph is kind of annoying. You know, he is annoying. <laughs> yes. So this is the paradox. You know, you don't want just anyone going around saying they're an apostle and prophet, and they're not. But the other side of that is that without the professional clergy's approval, you will be viewed with suspicion or as a rebellious person. Or you'll be viewed as a Jezebel. Just because you're a female and you speak what is on your mind in the context of Holy Spirit or whatever it is. Me and Mike encountered so much misunderstanding of even our relationship and the dynamics there. You know, it's like, Mike's the quiet one. Well, he should be the one talking. He doesn't want to talk, (laughs) you know? So leave him alone. I mean, it was frustrating. And then I'm the one, guess what? I like to talk. So it's a natural, It's it, that's just how it is. But I can guarantee you, anytime Mike says something, I listen. He's like E.F. Hutton. Because he doesn't say anything unless he has a reason. And he dang sure is not wrapped around my little pinky. So, but we would have people that they'd be like, man, it must be a trip living with her. I mean, Gigi might be able to say that. I think Mike is just obviously blessed with a gift from heaven. (laughs) (laughs) But anyway, so, you know, just even it's what it is, is people is they are imposing upon you their idea of who you are. And that should never be the case. And here's the other thing. What idea towards yourself are you imposing? Mm -hmm. Like you said, you would have never prophesied that. That's why Jehovah, he's Jehovah Sneaky too. Yeah. <laughs> and Darina almost blew it. So I think Darina 
probably needs to keep those thoughts to herself. But she's like, hey, is this like in the lesson where they were prophesying to themselves? I'm like, I'm not going to tell you that. Anyway, she's too prophetic. Yeah, so what ideas are you imposing upon yourself? Look at your spiritual intelligence report. Which parts are challenging you? Whatever part's challenging you, that's where you really need to come into that agreement. Of course, Gigi doesn't have one because he didn't obey instructions. <laughs> I had to give it to the person he got it for. That was so funny when he was like telling me, I'm like, oh my gosh, that's, that's John. That's not Gigi. <laughs> but anyway, so in Mark 11, I want to go over here uh, to verses 27 through 28. Mark 11, 27 through 28. Okay. So it says in verse 27, They came again into Jerusalem, and while Jesus was walking in the temple courts, the Jewish rulers, the chief priests, certain religious scholars, and the elders approached him. Uh, they came to him and asked, What right do you have to say and do these things? Who gave you the authority to do all of this? Now, what he was doing is he drove out the merchants. Remember, he sat in a corner and methodically made a whip and then ran them out. And they're like, okay, and I would be the same way. If some dude comes in and he starts, you know, driving people out with a whip, I'd probably be like, okay, wow, where, what's going on here? Where did you come from? By what authority are you doing these things? So it's actually a legitimate question to ask, but uh, he had already by this point had several miracles under his belt, several encounters, and they just refused to believe. So um, one thing that I want to say regarding their question is Jesus was not one of the professional clergymen. He wasn't one of them. He wasn't part of the clique. So what I like is he then pointed to another who wasn't one of them and turned the question to their own detriment because he said, I too have a question to ask you. If you can answer this question, then I'll tell you by what power I do all these things. Where did John's authority to immerse come from? Was it from heaven or was it from the people? Answer me now. Man, he's like all up in their business. So then it says they stepped away and they debated. And they're like, well, how should we answer this? If we say, I mean, I could just like picture Pelosi there and Schumer, you know, and all that stuff. Um, if we say from heaven, he's going to say to us, then why didn't you respond to John and believe what he said? But if we say from the people, we fear the crowds, for they're convinced that John was God's prophet. So here's the thing. You can actually use the fear that religious people have and political people have and turn it on them. And so Jesus, uh, so they finally said, well, we don't know. And so Jesus like, well, I'm not going to tell you where my power comes from to do these things. I love that. They <laughs> so, again, there are people, what I'm doing is I'm presenting you a picture of discernment. You know, if some crazy person carrying a cross um, comes in and starts pulling out a whip, I might have to pull out my Hellcat. You know what I mean? Not necessarily shoot them, but at least neutralize the threat. Um, 
you know, that's, but on the other side of that is you may have people that are legitimate prophets, apostles, that they may rub you the wrong way. Is that a test of your heart to see if you're willing to receive from someone that they are in that position, but you don't recognize them necessarily. So it definitely is going to take discernment. So you have those who claim that they are certain things and they're not, and then you have those that more than likely don't claim they're certain things and they are. You know, that's the thing. A lot of the people that are in that office, they don't walk around saying what they are. In fact, the only time you see them saying what they are is when they need to um, emphasize their authority to be there to do, to inspire faith in the other. See, because if you receive a righteous man, you get a righteous man's reward. If you view that righteous man as a prophet, you get a prophet's reward. You see what I mean? So however you view that person, which is why, guys, and this is very important, the sin of being too familiar can cause you to stumble. So, when you're part of an ecclesia, not a church situation, but when you're part of an ecclesia, we all do life together, right? It would cause me to stumble if I don't recognize who Diane is to us. If I don't recognize her giftings. Like I pulled out y'all's papers the other day where we did all that assessment. Man, we're craftsmen. I, I forgot about that. That was our common thing. I think there was only one person that did not have that as a spiritual gift. Um, might have been maybe Roberta or Gigi, but anyway, so if I, and then here's the other thing, and if you could take it further, I can see what Diane carries now, but the trick is to see how heaven sees her before she sees it, and then interact with her that way. Does that make sense? Because how you interact is not only the reward you will get for that interaction, it's also, the, it has in it the ability to show that person, wow, I'm that. And then they can begin to adjust themselves to it. Does that make sense? Well, I think when you've got your own kids, it's that way. You begin to, to speak and to train and to whatever they're going to be. Yes. Not where they're at at that second. Right, right. And so it's just important to not be familiar with one another where dishonor comes into the picture. That's that's just very, very important. So, all of the New Testament writers discuss that there will be false ministers. It's just a fact. And it amazes me how naive Christians are, not just in voting, but in how they interact with people that just because they have a title, just because they have a ministry, they think they're legit. How many would you say that went, that like came through uh, the past church, not the not Pastor Darwin's, but the one before, that were actually legit guest speakers. Mm. <clears throat> one. I think one. That prophet. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think one. The rest of them jacked in the head, man. If you are a minister. <laughs> And you think that pushing people down is cool? Jacked. You're jacked. If you think that looking on Facebook or asking people about uh, prophetic information and then using it as a prophet is cool, you're jacked. In fact, you might be in danger. So, yeah, I can think of one. And we went there, what, over 10 years? Mm -hmm. Probably closer to, well, it's about 10. So one one guest minister 
out of all that came through was actually legitimate. So they said that's going to be the case. Now let's let's flip over to Matthew chapter 7. And uh, this one blows people away. And by the way, we're about to get in Hebrews chapter 6. And uh, we're going to get into the subject of can you lose your salvation. If you want a preview, it's yes. <laughs> and what I'm about to read is evidence of that. Okay? So we're going to look at Matthew 7. And let's uh, look at verse 15. Constantly be on your guard against phony prophets. They come disguised as lambs appearing to be genuine, but on the inside they're like wild, ravenous wolves. You can spot them, how? By their actions. What did Kathy just say? Right? It's the actions. You can spot them by their actions, like trying to push you down when they're praying for you. For the fruits of their character will be obvious. You won't find sweet grapes hanging on a thorn bush, and you'll never put, pick good fruit from a tumbleweed. He must have been from New Mexico. <laughs> so if the tree is good, it will produce good fruit. But if the tree is bad, it will bear only rotten fruit, and it deserves to be cut down and burned. Look at the obvious fruit of their lives and ministries, and then you will know whether they are true or false. Did you notice he didn't put in there, look at their gifting, look at how they prophesy, look at how many people they heal, look at how many demons they cast out. No, it is the fruit. The fruit of covenant relationship in Christ equals good character. Okay? So then he says, and this should be very scary, not everyone who says to me, Lord, will enter the, kingdom of heaven, uh, enter the realm of heaven's kingdom, it is only those who persist in doing the will of the Heavenly Father. So these are not your notes. Only those who persist in doing the will. Persist. On the day of judgment, many will say to me, Lord, don't you remember us? Didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we cast out demons and do many miracles for the sake of your name? But I will say to them, go away from me, you lawless rebels. I've never been joined to you. Interesting. You know what that means? You never agreed with what he said. Your value and significance was contained in your performance and ministry, not in your agreement and alignment of your soul with the new creation reality on the inside of you. So what happens is instead of persisting in doing the will of God, there was a habitual uh, uh, perfection of sin. And so, in other words, they never agreed that sin had no dominion. And because of that, they never experienced the true union with Jesus Christ. So, people are like, well, you know, uh, I don't think that means a Christian. Okay, well, here's the thing. I can guarantee you a person who's not born again cannot cast out legitimately demons because the seven sons of Sceva, who were not Christian, tried it. And it didn't work. Now, you may have some fake crap going on where it appears that maybe a demon's coming out and stuff like that. But when it comes to a, you want to legitimately cast a demon out, only a believer has the authority to do so. And so, 
It's not the ministry gifts. And they appear to be righteous. They appear to be legitimate. We've had that happen many times. They appear actually to be even more righteous than you might feel. Let me prove it to you. First, let's look at Galatians 5, 22 through 23. And then we're going to finish up in, um, I think we're going to finish up. I don't know. Don't hold me to that. In 2 Corinthians. But here's what you need to look for. In Galatians 5, 22 through 23, Listen how this is phrased. But the fruit produced by the Holy Spirit within you is divine love in all its varied expressions. The one fruit's love. Okay? But it expresses itself in joy that overflows, peace that subdues, patience that endures, kindness in action, a life full of virtue, faith that prevails, gentleness of heart, and strength of spirit. Never set the law above these qualities, for they are meant to be limitless. That's why the only law that is allowed is the law of love. Because the law of love, which requires you to love God and yourself before others, is the transformative effect of that love. And so that means that as you allow His love to infiltrate your understanding, you then love yourself more and more. Then you start seeing joy and peace and patience. It's a natural thing. You don't like... You know, a tree standing outside, it's not looking at it saying, come on, fruit, come on, you got it. You're almost there. That's not how that works. The tree's just there, and the fruit produce, right? So it's the same thing. Okay, now, sometimes it can be hard to look for fruit, especially if it's like a traveling minister. You know, you got to have discernment. Uh, this is probably more in the context of an ecclesial-type setting. Uh but, you know, if you have ministers that have tunnels from the stage so they don't have to come in contact with the humans, uh, that might be an indication that something's wrong. Because real fivefold ministers want to be around the people. They want to interact. They are invested in the relationship. They want to make sure your marriages and your children and your grandchildren and your business and your finances and all that stuff are doing well. They're serving you well. And so people that are in these professional positions that don't want the crowds, the laity, to touch them or interact with them, it's stupid. And it's probably a clear indicator something's wrong with them. And I've always thought that about... Uh Sorry, but as a, some of the Catholic uh, orders mm -hmm. where they have the nuns and stuff, and they isolate themselves and they cut themselves off from other people, and they and it's like, what kind of service is that? Mm -hmm. Well, well you know, they believe that we we can come to Jesus and as we go through them mm -hmm. to go to Him. Mm -hmm. Well, and plus they got the weird idea that you have to separate yourself from the world in order to be pure with God, mm -hmm. which is completely contrary to Paul, who said, "I didn't say." It, not to interact with those in the world that do these things, because then you would have to be taken out of it. But to me, that's the... I always think about that being the physical picture mm -hmm. of what he's talking about. Well, I can tell you, I always behave myself when I'm by myself. It's when I get around other people <laughs> <laughs> that all of a sudden I'm like, you're stupid, you know, or whatever it is. So, yeah, it's real easy when you're out of any situations that could challenge you, you know, but once you're in the middle of it, I mean, I remember when I first started my business, I had to, you know, jump into the marketplace. I was like, whew, goodness, you know, the first uh, 
program I went through with the chamber and you know there's this girl that snatched my paper out of my hand on the bus I'm like oh no you did not I mean it was like and everybody I'm like give me the paper back you know like, so all of a sudden I'm having to not you know throat puncher because I'm number one they all know I'm a minister number two it's just not you know very professional and she gave the paper back but you know it's like you're now I'm in this situation where I have to learn how to navigate through it because I hadn't been in that environment in so long. Mm -hmm. And so, yes, it's very easy to be righteous when you're not exposed to any people that irritate you. And so, another thing I've noticed when you have this type of ministry set up is, and I've seen this firsthand, is that those that work more closely with them often don't want to dishonor the minister by exposing their lack of fruit or they'll dismiss it. Okay? So that is definitely the case because it's almost like in abusive relationships where the abuse wasn't in the beginning. So you, you get married and it was a, a very strong connection, a lot of um, you know, affection, things like that. And then as time grows, you know, goes on, that person changes and maybe they start yelling or abusing or whatever. You, know, you see this a lot, especially like in serial killers and stuff. And the person that's with them keeps seeing them how they were. And it's very hard on top of the fear of the threats they've said to them to get away. <coughs> I've seen the same thing with the pastor over in Colorado Springs where he was gay, he was a predator on young men, and everybody in the staff knew it. Those close to him knew it, but they were like, well, it's just Pastor Ted. You know, they, they kept seeing him how he was, not who he was at that point. Well, and don't you think they, um, they may see it like you said, they may make excuses, but I think they also redefine what fruit is. They oh, can, yeah. Um, this is fruit because we're bringing in money. The church is growing. We're bringing we're in church. money, yep. yeah. So the, they fool themselves into thinking that's legitimate fruit. Right, right. For a, in a certain area. Yeah, the fruit's very plain in Galatians chapter 5, 22 through, uh, 21 through 23. I will be very mad at y'all if I start getting dumb and y'all never say anything. <laughs> because that's what right. saves a person from continuing down a road. So for a lot of people, they don't want the wrath or they don't want to be fired or they don't want... Well, then that's your ego. If you can't lay your ego down enough or if you can't lay down, lay down your discomfort enough to go to someone and say, hey, it's probably not a good idea to pursue young men in a sexual relationship then it's on you for not doing something from that point on. Anybody that gets hurt, you need to ask for forgiveness for allowing that to happen. So we have to love one another well enough to say, hey, that's not cool. Well, I, you see it, we see it with abortion. It'd be like, well, yeah, but I can understand if they're raped. No. No. Sorry. I mean, you cannot sit there and just... Uh, Fit, make that circumstance fit. The murder yeah. is murder. There's yeah. no yeah. exception. Right. And you know, people are like, well, you've never been. Well, I can tell you one thing. I met a young girl who was a rape baby, and the mother just could not abort the baby. Mm -hmm. And so she carried her to full term. She was adopted, and she is a gorgeous, absolutely beautiful woman who went, I think, to Juilliard. Well, and that, and, and I think God does not see a rapist only as a rapist. He saw the potential in whoever that person was, let's just say rape, you know, 
he see do you think he doesn't just see us only as our sin right so you know he knew what the potential was for that person mm -hmm. you know all that stuff and then to say oh you know it's just cut off mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah i don't know it's just yeah it's that redefining of what god has said and done and meant that i think we fool ourselves right right and we, we're seeing really that good. across america with the the like mike said it's a murder with the um voting in people quite frankly that's carrying out murder yes they are yes they are so, even christians did and that and we are we're participating in that you know by doing that i'm gonna give you a quick trick on how to determine someone um but bad fruit can sometimes hide behind the dazzlement of gifts and anointing mm -hmm. So really use discernment just because they have a title, just because they have that ministry. But here's what I do. Take them out to eat and see how they treat the restaurant staff. Huh. It's worked every time. Mm -hmm. How they treat people they consider under lowly. Yeah. Okay, so let's get over to the super apostle section in uh, 2 Corinthians 11, 5. And this... Uh, basically, there were people who called themselves apostles that were attacking Paul and trying to undermine the church in Corinth, saying that Paul was not their true apostle. They were. So in verse 5, it says, Now I believe that I am not inferior in any way to these special super apostles you are attracted to. For although I may not be polished, uh, be a polished or eloquent speaker, I'm certainly not an amateur in revelation knowledge. Indeed, we've demonstrated this to you time and again. Okay, now let's drop down to verse uh, 13 through 15. For they are not true apostles, but deceitful ministers who masquerade as special apostles of the anointed one. That doesn't surprise us, for even Satan transforms himself to appear as an angel of light. So it's no wonder that his servants also go about pretending to be ministers of righteousness, but in the end they will be exposed and get exactly what they deserve. Okay, so I like how they call them super apostles. Because you can see that in these people that are fake. I mean, it's like they're over the top prophetic experiences. Huh? Just, you know, they're having one just every second. You know, and I'm like, do you ever just chill? Do you ever just read a book maybe or mow your yard? Does your poop stink? You know what I mean? It's like ridiculous how these people come off and portray themselves. And so um, the word disguises is very is a very good word. It is to transform the outer self while the inner self remains the same. There are those that maybe were born again, yet were always learning but never able to come to the truth. Or they were never born again, but they saw opportunity for gain, power, control, or some other goal. The main idea is that these are rotten on the inside, yet they appear to be ministers of righteousness, meaning they might even seem more righteous than you until you get close enough to see them for who they really are. Okay, over here in Romans chapter 12, we quote this a lot, but that word disguises. So this is not your notes, but in Romans uh, 12, 2, it says, Stop imitating the ideals and opinions of the culture around you, but be inwardly transformed by the Holy Spirit through a total reformation of how you think. That's what I'm talking about in the soul. That's the transformation of the soul. The word transformed there is a similar word to the word disguise here. 
One is meta uh, morpho O, and then is the other one where we get metamorphous? Ah, they're they're very similar. You can look them up in the Greek. The one Paul is describing here is the disguise aspect. The one here in Romans twelve two is where the person is so different; they're a completely new being. It's like if you take a garden and it's a Japanese garden. And you're like, okay, I want to change this Japanese garden into an English garden. It's still a garden. That's the disguise that Paul's referring to. But if you take that garden, you take it completely out, and you turn that into a ball field, now you have the transformation referred to in Romans chapter 12, verse 2. It's where what you once were no longer exists, and what you are now is who you are. Is that interesting? Yeah. So... These, to me, are people that have not allowed the Word to do its job or they never belong to the Lord. I don't even think you have to be a super apostle. I think there's people, I would say, I would hesitate to say 90% of people that go to church masquerade themselves as, I'm okay. How are you? I'm blessed. And highly favored. <laughs> but they're sitting there feeling condemned. Mm-hmm, right. And it's basically through their own words because... And the pastor that's telling them that they're scum. And everybody else that never has a problem. Right. You know, they don't want to be the only one. Like Joyce Meyer says, you know, mm-hmm. when they'd go to church on Sundays, they'd be yelling, screaming, trying to yeah. hit the kids in the back. <laughs> they'd be fussing and fighting, yeah, and then they walk in there, hello, praise the Lord. Oh, I'm blessed and highly favored. You know? <laughs> and then they're like, got their hands raised, and she's like, if you think that I'm going to do your laundry, you got another thing coming. You know? <laughs> Okay, so here's a little known but important fact for those that are called the fivefold functions, because everybody's a, a minister. Okay, so not just fivefold. Between the call and between the commission, that's real. That's where the real work and character takes place. It prepares you for that role. So I like the picture of the called and chosen that's taught with the Romans when they pick their soldiers. So basically, every male, I think, between the age of maybe 20 and 50 that was a Roman citizen, had to, they were drafted. They had to serve in the military unless they weren't chosen. So what they would do is you would be called or invited to be part of the Roman army. You couldn't be too old or too young. It didn't matter if you owned a business, if you were in school or just loafing around. Every male was required to show up when the invitation went out. That was the call. The Romans would then take the candidates through a series of tests to methodically rule out those who were not Roman soldier material. Only those who showed certain skills, physical and mental, were chosen. So you're calling from the Lord to partner with Him in the unique way He's designed you and called you to minister is the launch of a series of challenges and tests to craft you into the person that can sustain and faithfully execute his plan for your life. So a lot of the stuff that you're going through could possibly be the challenge and the test that's needed. It's your response. I think one of the most important lessons I learned that I would say kick-started some real growth was me and Mike had been married maybe three years, and um, the um, I think it was the modem in my computer died. 
And in the past, you know, anything that was like a repair or whatever, there'd be a lot of fear because we didn't have a lot of money. How was I going to fix it? Um, I think I was doing medical transcription. No, at that point, I, no, I was probably nearing toward the end, but I needed my computer. And uh, so I had just read the book, a uh, blessing or cursing or whatever it is, or praise, praise by Derek Prince and where he talked about you can complain and remain where you are or you can praise and that will bring out your answer. And so my initial response was like, how are we gonna get a modem? They're about $50 at the time, might as well have been 500. But instead, and Gigi had been mentioned this a lot at the time, I decided to praise the Lord for this opportunity to trust him. I don't even remember what happened. All I know is, is either that day or the next day, I had a modem in my hands and my computer was fixed. So that was like, okay, these things that seem inconsequential, that seem very small, were actually the tests that I needed to start passing. And I always have plenty of opportunity to keep, you know, taking the test, but that would then develop the character. You've got to have the character. See, the self-appointed people are those that have not allowed their character to be refined. They're prematurely burst or they're fake. So don't get impatient. Cooperate. Don't shorten ignore the process. Don't sweep under the rug the things he's highlighting. But don't get so focused on character changes that that's all you see that needs to be changed. You want to celebrate who you are in the midst of the process. And know, and know this too. Even though you're in between the call and the commission, you will be operating in your call at some level before you're commissioned. Okay? So how is a person appointed? Well, let's get back over to Hebrews, and we'll finish up. But when I learned that process and to enjoy it, the journey is the fun part. Um, you know, you just then settle in. You don't get impatient. You don't want to hurry up and get out of your trial. You just settle in. Now, make sure you rebuke the devil, though, when you're in that trial. Make sure it's not from him. Okay, so how is a person appointed by God? And typically, this will be in a thriving uh, community of like-minded people like Paul and Barnabas. Um, hopefully, that's the case. For some of you, it may not be. But there should be some form of community with recognized servant leaders that can validate your role. Okay. I want to show you how Jesus was appointed. Dang it. All right. In Hebrews 5, 5 through 6. So also, Christ was not self-appointed, did not glorify himself by becoming a high priest, but God called and glorified him, for the Father said to him, You are my favored son. Today I have fathered you. And in another scripture, he says about his, this new priestly order, You are a priest like Melchizedek, a king priest forever. Okay, did y'all notice anything there? Anything stand out to y'all? Well, Melchizedek was like not of the lineage of the Levi's one thing. Mm -hmm. But we're talking about call, right? Mm -hmm. God called him and glorified him. Right, but how? See, this, this blew my mind. He was appointed at the impartation of identity. Don't see that? You are my favored son. Today I have fathered you. You are a priest like Melchizedek, a king priest forever. The appointing was in the identity. Isn't that neat? I never saw that. So he's got the father telling him who he is. 
And the Melchizedek was before he was even born. You know, so, and we're going to dive into that. But in Psalm 110.4 in the English Standard, it says, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek means king of righteousness. He was a king of Salem or the king of peace. So he was basically the epitome of the king of peace and king of righteousness. But I just thought it was fascinating that his appointment was in the impartation of identity. So, back to your spiritual intelligence. That's why the identity is so important. That's why we picked the theme. The theme is your identity. Guess what? You're appointed. So I thought that was very, very interesting. In Hebrews 12, 11 in the English Standard, it says, For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So back to the Melchizedek. Peace is centered in righteousness. Okay? Melchizedek, as a king priest, um, he was pre-law. Okay? So he, he existed before the law. So you couldn't combine the two. As such, pre-law and king priest, he was a prototype of Jesus Christ, a true high priest, or as some believe he was actually what's called a theophany or a pre-incarnate appearance of, of Jesus Christ. So some say Melchizedek was Jesus. So I'm not sure. Hopefully in my in-depth study, we'll be able to come to a conclusion. Okay. After Jesus received his appointment through the impartation of identity, what happened next? Well, he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil for 40 days and 40 nights. Now, this is key. The Weiss translation says, The devil said to him, In view of the fact that you are the Son of God, by virtue of your possession of the divine essence, you all, I, we all possess the divine essence. We are sons of God. Okay, we have to recognize that the enemy recognized Jesus was the Son of God. What he didn't understand is that, that his death would be a seed for millions to then be sons of God. And by the end of the age, untold numbers of believers through history, which means we possess the divine essence in this side of us. But what I want you to see is the first thing the devil went after was the temptation for Jesus not against his identity, but to use his identity for his own comfort or gain. That's what the devil does. See, everybody's like, well, warfare is centered around identity. That is a true statement. But in this aspect, the warfare was centered in how he was going to use his identity. And so if you trace down the false prophets, the false teachers, the false apostles, it was they used their identity. They were called to that office. They knew they were called to that office. But when they went before the Lord, they were not passing their tests. They were not allowing the Word to change them. They were pursuing sinful actions and sinful lifestyles. Whatever it was, they never allowed, right, the work of the Holy Spirit on the inside to transform their souls. Therefore, they used their identity, that call to be an apostle, for their own gain. Because if you look at any time they talk about the false, it's always for their own gain. There's always a power trip involved, money involved, and sex involved every time. So that is where you got to be careful. Don't allow the enemy to tempt you to use your identity for your own comfort or gain. This will happen to every single one of us. 
marketplace, fivefold, it doesn't matter. So how can you use that? How can you use your identity in Christ and your call to benefit you? This is where character development can answer the temptation. So embrace the journey, embrace the process, enjoy it. It's one of the most challenging but also rewarding experiences you will have. Okay, Psalm 139, 15 through 16, the English standard. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. You saw, your eyes saw my unformed substance in your book, were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. So it's just simply cooperating, follow directions. Okay, let's finish up. Uh, verse 7. During Christ's days on earth, he pleaded with God, praying with passion, and this is going to bless you guys, and with tearful agony that God would spare him from death. And because of his perfect devotion, his prayer was answered. What? No, he died. What can that be talking about? And he was delivered. But even though he was a wonderful son, he learned to listen and obey through all his sufferings. And after being proven perfect in this way, he has now become the source of eternal salvation to all who listen to him and obey. For God has designated him as a king priest who is over the priestly order of Melchizedek. Because Melchizedek is without beginning or without end. Okay, now this is very interesting. Okay. When Christ clothed himself with the body, he prayed with passion and tearful agony that God would spare him from death. The Bible lets us know right here that his prayer was answered, which gives us a clue to what this means, because he did die. So what exactly is he talking about? This is very interesting. The word from is that little-known, interesting word, ek. It's used to indicate the separation of something that is in another thing. Now, this may sound familiar because of the pre-trib rapture. Everybody's like, well, God's going to keep us from the hour of trial, which has come upon the earth. That's in, I think, speaking to the church of Philadelphia. That word from is ek. It's the same word. So it means you're in something, right? So it's like taking a cup out of another cup. The idol must be in it first in order for it to be ek. So we see that Jesus was in death and God took him out of it by resurrecting him. Okay? So it implied that Jesus had to use his faith to be resurrected and his faith was evident by the petitions to God concerning the matter. So what it shows us, and this is fascinating, is that even the Son of God, God in the flesh, took all the prophecies that he would be resurrected and he prayed them. That's what that means. Okay. Now, we got to look at the Greek word for death because it's even more interesting. So, it does mean to die, you know, physically. But it also, quote, is this, it has the sense of destruction, perdition, misery, implying both physical death and exclusion from the presence and favor of God. It's the opposite of zoe, the Greek word for life. And the bliss and glory of the kingdom of God, including the idea of a joyful resurrection. So, the word for death is rejection from the kingdom of God. So, he was rejected, right? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was rejected from the kingdom of God so that we would never be rejected from the kingdom of God. Isn't that amazing? 
So it's both the physical death coupled with the eternal condemnation. This is the second death of which we're not a part of. So Jesus' main prayer was to be spared from separation from his presence and favor. I don't think death scared him, physical death. I think the idea of being separated from his father is what really got to him. But he had to experience this for us. He had to be separated so that we could be included. In Isaiah 59.2, it says, But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Ephesians 2.12 says, Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to covenant promises, having no hope and without God in the world. Yet, look at you now. Everything is new. Although you were once distant and far away from God, now you've been brought delightfully close to Him through the sacred blood of Jesus. You've actually been united to Christ. Our reconciling peace is Jesus. He made both Jew and non-Jew one in Christ. By dying as our sacrifice, He broke down every wall of prejudice that separated us and now has made us equal through our union with Christ. Ethnic hatred has been dissolved by the crucifixion of His precious body on the cross. The legal code that stood condemning every one of us has now been repealed by His command. His triune essence has made peace between us by starting over, forming one new race of humanity. Jews and non-Jews fused together. So all of that was accomplished because He prayed. And He believed it. And then He learned to listen. So what does this mean? Listen and obey means pay attention and get this, to listen for the knock on the door. So yesterday, Gigi comes out of his room and he's sitting at the table. And it's kind of unusual. Sometimes he's not out at that time on Saturday. The mailman's not come yet. Nope. So he sits there. We're visiting a little bit. Or him and Mike. Oh, there's the mailman. Mike's like, oh, really? Yep. And I'm like, what is he doing? It was his phone. Mm -hmm. That's what this is talking about. He's at the table. He's waiting for his mail. Because in the mail, he has an iPhone, finally. Yeah. <laughs> so he's waiting for his iPhone. Yeah. And so, sure enough, the mailman comes. Mike goes out. Or no, Gigi went out. We were thinking he was probably getting the mailman saved because they talked forever. I thought my bills were going to be passed due because it took him so long to come back in. But the fact is, is that he was expecting it. Therefore, he was waiting for that. That's exactly what this is talking about. It's to obey on the basis of having paid attention. It's hard to obey if you're not paying attention to what God is saying to you. It requires living a life of never taking your eyes off the mailman because your phone's there. You know, whatever it is, you're not taking your eye off of it. That's why you must have a definite chief aim. Why were you born? Like, the mastermind we're starting, that, that's where we're starting. What is your definite chief aim? Why were you, you born? Because once you have that, you are able to collect and organize information and experiences into one purpose, and that is to live while you were born. It's the same thing here. Jesus is my definite chief aim. I'm going to take everything. I'm going to pay attention to it. I'm going to organize it in a way that I will live true to who he says that I am. So you're always attentive to what he's saying. And because he did this, he's now the source and author of our salvation. Okay? So, I'm curious where the Melchizedek takes us. Like, 
where it says he was like Melchizedek. Well, is that like the like that we use where it means he was similar to or is it to the same degree like we see in other places where that word is used? So I'd love to have that question settled personally. I don't know if it, if it will be, but we'll, we'll get into all that. So um, any, any thoughts or any questions? So I'll uh, uh, I'll pray and then I already gave our ties electronically. So um, just know that I've already given ours. That way, you know, like, what are you doing? Where's your time? All right. Well, Father, we thank you so much for the Word of God. We thank you that Jesus Christ laid aside His attributes as God. He never called upon them. He never used them to escape the plan that you gave Him to uh, accomplish. Instead. He interacted on earth with you and also with other people as fully man. 100% God, but he lived fully man. Therefore, he set a pattern. He set an example. I prayed the word, you pray the word. I submitted to the voice of the Father, you submit to the voice of the Father. He did everything for us. I mean, literally plowed the road open. All we have to do is follow his voice and obey what he says. So we thank you for that. And we thank you that on top of him making the path for us, he also then ascended to heaven and gave us his Holy Spirit, who now guides us and keeps us on that path. So I pray that just like we are sometimes excited for maybe someone that's coming over and we're waiting for the knock or maybe we're expecting a package and we make arrangements to make sure we get that package, that that same sense of delight and wanting to make sure we get that, that we have that same attitude toward living in Christ in doing the, I guess you would say, the life work, the definite chief aim, the, the, the assignment He has given us, that we stay in our lane and we allow the Holy Spirit guide us to that definite end. Father, all of us in the room want to end with, well done, faithful, trustworthy servant. And so I ask that you help us do that. This morning, we want to give our tithes and offerings to you. It's our pledge of allegiance. You are more important to us than money. Being obedient to you is more important than attaining and holding on to possessions. Father, I pray that you see and help us, enable us, to live as Abraham did, where he was extremely wealthy, yet he did not hold on to those things as something to possess but instead he was a conduit for those things to flow through and to other people so father we ask that jesus receive our tithes and offerings this morning where he is seated uh, we give them as king priests to him we thank you that he has given us the ability to prosper and to confirm his covenant we love you we give you glory in jesus name amen